0: Hello and welcome back to Fourth Estate, a show about journalism. We're coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name's Tina Quinn. It's a pleasure as always to have your company. Satire has long been used to poke fun and pull down the high and mighty. Laughter may be the best medicine, but what happens when jokes become conflated with journalism? Can hard reporting even be humorous? And what happens when commentators use comedy as a shield to protect themselves against scrutiny? This week we're joined by Julian Morrow. He's one of the founders of The Chaser and Giant Dwarf, as well as the creator of The Checkout and the presenter of Sunday Extra on ABC Radio National. Julian Morrow, a warm welcome to Fourth Estate. Pleasure to be here. And Brad Esposito also joins us. He is the head of editorial for Vice in Australia and New Zealand. Before that, he was part of the founding team at BuzzFeed Australia, where he made his name reporting on internet culture. Brad Esposito, welcome to Fourth Estate.
1: Yeah, happy to be here.
0: So it seems as though more people are getting news and information from comedians or satirists, in the last 20 years there's been this rise of informative, researched entertainment, something like The Daily Show or or Last Week Tonight. What do you think is behind this? Julian, I'm
2: going to go to you first. I think there's always been an appetite for that sort of content, but I actually think it's technology that's made it a lot easier to deliver that sort of content. And I happen to know from speaking to writers of The Daily Show that it was actually the capacity to record material and access it and search it by transcript and those sorts of things that made uh, the writer said to me, the Daily Show is a funnier show because we can do that now and we used not to be able to do it. So I think it's a combination of the capacity to review and then also the inclination of some sort of trendsetters like Jon Stewart and you know others who followed through basically the Daily Show lineage, which have made it more open. And then also the the introduction of YouTube and the fact that anyone can become a commentator now, the barriers to entry are lower. Brad, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I
1: I broadly agree. And I think the other part of it is like, while it's easy to think of it as comedy and satire, but like ultimately it's entertaining, right? Mm. That's every, every young person under the age of 30 has been like blasted into this media world or content world where what you make by default needs to be entertaining, And one of the easiest ways to do that is to be funny. I think that that has just become so much of like the creation of your own identity online that it makes sense it would trickle into the production of media, the production of written stuff, the production of photos, visual, it all skews towards that YouTube generation that Julian was mentioning.
2: One other thing that just occurred to me as well, I think another factor is probably a well-earned dissatisfaction Mm. with the results of conventional journalism. Yeah, yeah, I agree. You,
0: well, Julian, do you think a satirical tone emboldens you in places where conventional news journals would otherwise hesitate?
2: It can, but fundamentally the same rules apply and it depends on the specific type of production that you're doing. I mean, mm. the same rules applied to us when we made The Chaser Newspaper, which had a readership of about negative <laughs> 1,000 compared to when we were making television shows that were watched by millions of people a week. But we just ignored the rules when we were small and mm. no one cared. And then when we were on the ABC, people did care a little bit more. And you know, in the context of the ABC, you've also got the ABC editorial policy. So I don't think it's satire or not satire that makes the difference. I mean, it can cut through
0: complex issues like you know a good cartoon in the paper does. When you were doing The Chaser, did you feel that you were breaking news or did you think the audience... Might have thought you were, in a sense.
2: Well, that's a complex question. In the in the <laughs> case, uh. Uh, in thirty seconds, it, please. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Most of the time, we were we were commenting on the news, so no. you know, we weren't breaking no. news. Except for the times when we were the headlines, in which case we were, breaking news.
0: (laughs) (laughs) about to say, except in the case when you actually were the news yourself, you were the story. Which
2: became more and more the case and made it sort of harder to do the commentary. But at the same time, when you're writing satire, you can't assume that people know the news. So you sort of have to, like it's actually just the basics of craft. If you're going to make a joke about politics, you need to put the information in about the joke in the setup so you can get the punchline.
0: What did you see
2: yourself as? A citizen journalist or were you an activist? No, definitely not. Okay. Uh, I I think it's fair to say we didn't trouble ourselves with that, with what the tags that applied to us. Although we did hate being called the chaser boys, not least because most of us were well into middle age by the time (laughs) the the, the term was being used. But look, I mean, I suppose we thought of ourselves as doing comedy. We, We sort of balked at the tag of journalism, but that's probably got more to do with our own psychological proclivities rather than anything else. And we didn't like the term satirist because it sounded too pretentious. I mean, the working definition of satire in The Chaser is satire is comedy that's not actually funny.
0: Brad, you, like myself, grew up in The Chaser Generation and sort of, I mean, that was a pretty big thing when I was in high school. I'm sure the same for you. What was your view on what The Chasers were doing?
1: I think the interesting thing about satire and about what I would probably say it's experiential, right? Mm. I'm 28. Mm. And I am part of a generation, the last generation, to have both sides of the coin. I remember offline and I remember online, (laughs) right? Which means I remember getting news and seeing people telling the news and being like, who is this person? They don't talk like me. They're not talking about things I particularly care about or understand that well. Mm. And they're doing it at a regimented time every day that I need to abide by if I want to be informed. I think the chaser – I won't say the chaser, boys – the chaser uh, (laughs) (laughs) and and everything that's come since then are, like, this wave of pulling the curtain back and being Mm. like, why can't we talk like human beings? Like, why can't Mm. we have identities and why can't we confront politicians and news stories and even, like, the news cycle and what we categorize as news as human beings like you would at the dinner table? Because we all do that. It's Mm -hmm. no secret. There was just some weird, ingrained, century-old thing that was, like (laughs) – who, what, when, where, why, and um, don't piss anyone off and don't get sued.
0: Do you think people are more interested in news and facts if it's served to them with a punchline?
1: I mean, yeah. Are you more interested in being entertained? Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> absolutely, I think okay. so. I think what you unpack is what is the punchline? It doesn't have to be like a rolling on the floor laughing mm-hmm. thing. It's more about the casualness of it and the realism of it as well.
0: We should probably turn to one of the bigger names in the Australian space that we're we're really discussing, at least in the current climate, and that's Friendly Geordies. What, if anything, separates someone like Friendly Geordies from, say, an independent columnist?
2: Well, I need to issue a very significant disclaimer before answering this. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give you the honest answer, which is I don't know, because I don't know that much (laughs) about Friendly Geordies and I can't pretend to give a sort of informed answer on that, even though, you know, I've spent 20 years pretending to give informed answers about things I knew nothing about.
1: <laughs> okay, oh I'll handle gosh. all of this. Uh, oh, God. <laughs> um, look, so my answer would be like, not a whole lot, except for digital literacy oh. and and the ability to understand how stories should be told online.
2: And maybe sort of semi-owning the means of production as well?
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like, he, he is an individual that you could argue is one of the biggest youth publishers in Australia. Okay. An individual. Explain he, how so. Well, okay, so he has a team. He does have a team. I shouldn't say an individual. Mm-hmm. But what I mean is, like, I would imagine his audience is largely young, if not entirely, and they're able to access him at any point, at any time, with regular updates on all sorts of parts of the internet. And the fact that he's been able to build that deserves inspection from, I think, more traditional forms of media. While there are certainly parts of the way he goes about things that piss people off, get them going the wrong way, raise questions about, oh, I'm not sure that like the journalistic ethics and standards I was taught at Sydney Uni would abide by this. Mm. And they're probably right. But there's also the part of what he's doing that's like, this is
2: working in a way that what everyone else is doing is kind of not. To give you a sense of that, my, my one bit of research into Friendly is I've just looked at his YouTube page now. He's got 591,000 subscribers. <laughs> so he, he outrates the ABC with most of his videos. And that's one person. And that that is a huge difference.
0: And that is sort of the medium that he uses is YouTube. That's how, you know, much Mm. of his content is put out to the world and his audience. Brad, what do you mean by it's working?
1: Well, I mean, he's got the audience. And now we're beginning to see probably in the last couple of years that he has the crossover as well. He also has the assertiveness and ability to step over the line that pretty much anyone else working in traditional or digital media Mm -hmm. where they're not self-funded can't really do. Like, there's a lot of checks and balances you got to go through before you show up out the front of a politician's place with a camera and be like, hey, answer these questions quick, 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 quick. you got to ask your boss before you do that. But he's his boss.
0: As a disclaimer as well, though, he's not exactly self-funded, is he?
1: Well, yeah, yeah. So, he's – for a lot of people, they go – he's not honest about how he's, like, not self-funded. It's not all Patreon. It's not all donations. Like, he does sponsored stuff, and I know there's incidents in the past mm-hmm. where – this happened at BuzzFeed, like Mark Stefano reported on how I think it was the Labor Party had funded some like native journalism kind of stuff. But I also think there's a disconnect there where I believe young people kind of know that right. a little bit and they're okay with that because this idea of, again, to go back to the previous point of like like objective newsreader down the line who tells you the facts and nothing mm-hmm. but the facts and bores you to tears, that's dissolved to the point where young people are like, hey, I I know this guy, he talks about stuff that I agree with and that I believe to be true. Yes, it's up to me to fact check that. And we can talk endlessly about media literacy in the (laughs) developed world where that's definitely needs like a pickup. But I think that ability to align yourself with an individual is something that is very current and and very accelerated by the internet in a way that we've never had to deal with. And what, what we face is a bunch of the stakeholders at larger media companies who have been there for decades, just do not have the internet literacy because they weren't born in it. And it's not their fault. But, like, they can study really hard. They can read all the things. They can really work hard to be like, okay, so, like, how do people tell stories online? Yeah, okay. And they'll get 95% of the way there. But there's that 5% that people who were born in it, younger generation, Gen Z, millennial, like, the lower millennial, that they can just do it. I talk to my team about, like, it's the vibes. And you can't really explain it in any other way. You're like, this person has the vibes.
0: So you think that his assertiveness obviously appeals to that audience. In interviews, Friendly Geordies has been described as a watchdog, and his Twitter bio asks people to email him to report corruption. Supporters might say that someone like Friendly Geordies is a provocateur, you know, speaking truth to power. Julian, from what, the little that you've seen of his work, is he a comedian? And The Chaser and, and Friendly Geordies, do you think they're doing similar work in a sense? Can you see the parallels?
2: I can see the parallels. I really can't say because I just haven't seen enough to be able to give an informed answer about Friendly Geordie's content. But I definitely can say that they're operating in an environment where there are less external constraints on them. But I just wouldn't assume that anything that is bold enough to give itself a big capital J journalism is necessarily working in a better and more rigorous framework because the self-regulation of the traditional media is well known to be a piss-weak joke.
1: Yeah, I agree. Even at its ground level, we have left-leaning media and Mm. we have right-leaning media, and we allow that. And we have that expectation. And there are newspapers you read where you go, this is a conservative press, Mm -hmm. so they're going to have this approach. They're going to have this approach to the economy and this approach to climate change. And then we have like the left-leaning ones. And I'll read that when I want to feel like less that way and more progressive. And I think what the internet's done and what Friendly Geordies has done and what this rise of the, I hate saying this word, but like the creator economy has allowed (laughs) all of those things to like tear apart, like string cheese, like really come really far apart where you could be hyper-partisan either way if your audience follows you.
0: Julian, something like this would have previously run on ABC2 late at night, getting you know quite a small audience. Now that this is on YouTube, it's widely more popular and it generates huge heat on social media. What do you think of the benefits of
2: this? Oh, I think it's broadly a good thing. I think that there are fewer gatekeepers. You know, one of the problems with the ABC is that if there is anything that's sort of a bit edgy or, mm. or cut through, yeah, probably will put it on ABC2 late at night because... You know, ABC management's scared of making a bold decision. I mean, I I think that, broadly speaking, it's good for, you know, a thousand flowers to bloom in terms of media generally, but that comes with problems. That just comes with more outliers. There's less centralised control, and that makes the whole thing more chaotic. But I think, overall, it's a better environment to be in than when there were one or two sort of faceless decision-makers who determined who got access to the ABC and therefore what the national definition of satire was.
1: And I also think like, it's important to inspect this, to look at Friendly Geordies, to look at digital creators through the lens of we are in Australia, which is, if you want my honest opinion, in terms of media goes, is five years at a minimum behind a lot of the time mm, yeah. what the rest of the world is doing. You go to America, there are dozens if not hundreds of Friendly Geordies. Having these kinds of conversations about those people in the United States, people be like, yeah, we know <laughs> you know? <laughs> and if you've got a problem with it, then like, don't watch. Like, that's the big thing now. You go, well, if you've got a problem with the way this person is talking or what they're reporting or how they approach capital J journalism, then th- turn it off.
0: Do you think, though, it's a bit of a breeding ground for conspiracy theories and it's targeting an audience that have distrust in institutions and traditional institutions?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, like, yeah, it's a a risk, but I think the question is, why is there a risk? It's only partially because of the creator at any end, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. YouTube is the breeding ground, not Friendly (laughs) Geordies. The question is, how should that sort of environment be regulated? What rules should apply? And... That is something that's much bigger than satire and which is being considered more broadly at the moment. And I think that does need to be looked at. And it's certainly not addressed by doing things like negotiating deals between big media companies Mm. and YouTube to get a little bit more money. That does nothing for journalism or for for objectivity in media. So I think that how you're held accountable for the content that you create is a big and important question. Mm -hmm. And the Australian defamation laws as they currently stand is probably is definitely not the answer um it's a pretty blunt flawed tool brad when
0: you were working at buzzfeed you actually worked with one of the female journalists <laughs> Oof, yeah, who yeah, will, yeah. and she can will <laughs> remain nameless but she got on his radar what was that experience like
1: uh, i mean look I can't speak for for her but I I am sure she didn't enjoy it and I've been on his radar too mm-hmm. not not to that extent and I mean the fact that we're talking about him right now probably means there's that that is very capable of happening mm-hmm. from this conversation as well and I know for a lot of people it is incredibly distressing to get cyberbullied to get like called out online to get harassed and it is damaging mm-hmm. right it can be harmful it can be more than harmful personally I have the I am lucky in that I don't let it affect me, but not everyone has that. And I think, like, with what happened at BuzzFeed, the most interesting thing to me, right, is with these individual creators, is the way that they publish is one way, right? It is under the guise of going both ways, but it is I'm going to make a 15 minute YouTube video Mm -hmm. destroying you, and let's see what you can do in response. And part of the reason that Friendly Geordies and, and a lot of this like creator generation has been able to capitalise on that is because a lot of the journalists, a lot of people in media or a lot of the public do not have the skill set to respond. Mm -hmm. So their response is like a tweet or nothing. Mm -hmm. And
2: that's all they can do. And in that sense, Friendly Geordlies or whoever it is, is very like the traditional media because Mm -hmm. try having a current affair or Today Tonight or Four Corners go you and you'll find very much the same differential inability to hit back.
0: Do you think, though, that there is a gendered aspect to this? And I will say, in bringing this panel together today, I did reach out to several female journalists, all of who said no, who mm. declined because they had concerns about speaking publicly on Friendly
1: Geordies. So, like, I don't, I don't watch all of his videos, and I, mm. if I'm very honest, like, mm-hmm. I don't really keep tabs on him much mm-hmm. anymore. That was probably, like, a 2016, 17 version of myself. But I think... In general, women cop it way more online Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of everything, in in terms of the expectations they're made to uphold, Mm -hmm. the personas they're expected to have, the way they're expected to talk. And like on the other side of it, the abuse they have to handle, not handle, but just have to just deal with. And it's not fair and it's not nice. And it is like an awful part of the internet where Mm. we have all participated in creating. If you ask me like, why is that? And why doesn't it happen to men? I honestly like really couldn't tell you outside of, like, the culture mm-hmm. broadly. Like, mm-hmm. I don't think this is a siloed Friendly Geordies and his audience do X thing.
0: No, no, it's it's definitely something that's been uh, happening for years. Julian, in, in the, the heyday of The Chasers War and Everything we saw uh, a lot of criticism being thrown at people like Jessica Rowe or Naomi Robson, sort of the big female media stars at that time. That was sometimes at the hands of The Chasers as well. Is that something that you've noticed? Do you think there's still sort of a special venom? I guess, that's reserved for female journalists or female media personalities?
2: Oh, there's no doubt that there is. I think it's always about what sort of attack you make on someone. The host of Today Tonight and the host of A Current Affair mm. are fair game about about what they do at work. And going beyond that is a lot more complicated an area for any presenter. Mm. But is there an undercurrent of really horrific sexism that tends to pop up a lot more due to social media? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. No question.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I will say as well, though, that, like, it's an identity thing. So, like, YouTube creators, Friendly Geordies, is kind of like a mirror of, quote, unquote, traditional reporters. And, and, mm-hmm. and the way he is a mirror is that you are now expected, if you work in media, and if anyone tells you otherwise, they're, they're either wrong or mm-hmm. they're lying, um, that your personality – and who you represent and how you represent yourself online is just as much a part. As your quote-unquote job, as mm-hmm. anything you like you're kind of expected to be online twenty-four-seven. You're expected mm-hmm. to be this figure. Think about all the ABC journalists or anyone that has to put in their Twitter mm-hmm. bio like my words don't mean my employer's yep. views. Like that's insane. Like of course they don't. But we've created this weird hybrid thing where it's like, well, if you're online, and you have a profile. Then you represent the company. And the thing with friendly geordies and again broadly, like YouTube creators, content creators, they are the company. They don't have to worry about that as mm. much. So you have these traditional media people online trying to create profiles for themselves, often women, and because they have to put so much of their own livelihood and so much of their own personality into it just by way of keeping a job, they open themselves up to the generally culturally mean, sexist, Mm. awful parts of not so much the internet, but like the world. Like, they're one and the same.
0: Unfortunately, yes. Julian, there's currently a defamation case ongoing between Friendly Geordies and John Barilaro. Do you think satire should be protected from defamation action?
2: No. (laughs) That was a good (laughs) lawyer Okay, very good. Why not then? Do I think that the current defamation laws are exactly right? No, but I think, think, you know, satire is going to be in the grey area. I mean, I was just thinking about if you had an exception for satire, to defamation then I mean that would be there'd be a lot more satire practiced I suppose and not necessarily for the better (laughs) I think it should be harder to sue for satire but exactly how you legislate that I I don't know I mean it certainly seems like Australia's much more backward in that sort of stuff than America, and that's because they've got the First Amendment protection. Mm. But we all know that the First Amendment protection comes with tricky areas as well. So, <laughs> tough. well,
0: on that, I mean, he's friendly, Geordie's has raised a million dollars from supporters. Do you think that a million dollars <laughs> from supporters would have helped when Chris Kenny tried to sue you for defamation?
2: probably would have made it more likely that the thing went to court. So you would have had a
1: million dollars. <laughs> yeah, that's oh, right. If, it, if
2: you knew that, you'd be you'd, you'd be suing. I mean, we used to put on the chaser, you know, you're, you're suing a hollow shell of a company behind which stand hollow shells of individuals, so there's no <laughs> yeah. point. And that changed, I suppose, when we were on the ABC, and that's mm-hmm. why I think Chris Kenny was willing to sue. He was more interested in suing the ABC than us. If you know that the person that you're suing just raised a million bucks for the defence fund, it probably changes your, <laughs> your approach to that stoush. Do you
0: think calling content satire? offers the best of both worlds then. You know, you can critique and take on the powerful and wield your influence like a sword, but when you're called to account for your actions, you get to hide behind the shield of, I'm not a journalist, it's, it's just
2: a joke. I don't think you do get to hide behind that shield. Uh, you know, the defamation laws apply in the same way. The communications regulations apply in the same way. I think there is a grey area that satire can live really well in but I don't think it gives you protections, mm-hmm. legally or otherwise.
0: There's a federal election coming this year or early next. We're not quite sure yet. I'd like to end on how the role you both see satire and straight news playing out against more hyperpartisan channels like the friendly Geordies of the world. Julian, I'm going to go to you first.
2: I mean, that's all part of the passing parade. The most important things are doing your craft well and I think, I think maintaining an idea of objectivity and at least aspiring to being based on facts is important. The skin that you put on the content, whether it's a comedy skin or a news and current affairs presentation, doesn't make much difference. Mm. To that, you know, because you can be the – something that looks like a legit news show could be the ABC News and it could be the One America Network. (laughs) If you're just looking to the visual or form cues, then you're going to make some terrible mistakes.
1: Brad? I think this is a broader thing that we will, as a media and as a culture, like move through over the next 10 years. But what I say to people I know and people in my team is that the idea of content being king is old. And the correct way to think about things is that format is king. And at the moment, Friendly Geordies and online creators are doing it in the right format. That's not to say the content they create, I'm not like having any comment on the content they create, but the format is the right format. And if you look at the other side of things, if you look at how the broadsheet papers and News Corp and Triple J are probably thinking about how should we inform our audience, a lot of it is going to be through the format that they have always used. And I think we should ask more questions about why we do that. Why do we just have the radio show and have the newspaper and then get upset when no one listens or no one reads? Hmm. Shouldn't it be like, well, <laughs> where are they? <laughs> They're going somewhere. And why aren't we there? And I think like Triple J has been starting to do this quite well. And I think Hack has been starting to do this quite well. And I think we will make that transition, but. You know, you don't know you're in the Wild West when you're in the Wild West. And we're in this very awkward phase right now from like 2010 to now, which is really the very, very, very early days of the social internet. What Mm -hmm. we think of the internet now and what we think of the way we tell stories and everything is going to be like a footnote on how it becomes the norm. But we're in it and we're like, no, this is the death of media and this is, no, one is, no one's reading anymore. And it's like, yeah, but that's not a bad thing. So I think in terms of the election coming up, yeah. the people that reach their audience where their audience is are going to be the ones that make the best stuff and also get best response from their
2: audience as well.
0: On that note, I'd like to thank both of my guests for joining us on Fourth Estate, Julian Morrow.
2: Thanks very much. It's so, so quaint and old-fashioned to be on the radio. It's lovely.
0: <laughs> <laughs> hey, media's dead, right? And uh, Brad Esposito, thank you very much for joining us in Fourth Estate.
2: Yeah, it's
1: good to be here. Thanks.
0: And thank you for listening to Fourth Estate. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation, thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk media, politics and a lot in between. We'll be back with more next week, of course, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is Forth Estate AU. A big thanks to my producer, Toby Hemmings, and executive producer, Anthony Dockrell. My name's Tina Quinn. Please do stay well, stay safe, and you can catch us next week on Fourth Estate.